What's up everybody, this is Elliot Terrell and you're listening to Magical Thinking. This episode, our guest is Scott Neary of Scott Neary's Booby Trap, currently happening in Los Angeles every Wednesday night. Booby Trap is super fun. I was just there last night, it's amazing. Last night was the first show in Hollywood. It went off incredibly well. We had a blast, there was a ton of people there. Some of the performers were amazing, some of them were incredible, some of them were bonkers. You never know what to expect when you go to Booby Trap, but the performers are always amazing and the show is always super fun. So if you're in Los Angeles, go see Booby Trap Wednesday nights, eight o'clock, tickets at boobyla.com. Okay, now that that plug is out of the way, Scott is the person who hosts the show. He created the show and we talk about what a variety show is, what makes it good, how the show got started, what he was doing before he was doing Booby Trap. He's a renowned performance artist, juggler, comedian, host person, and he's done really amazing, wonderful, hilarious stuff for many years. And he's currently gracing Los Angeles with Booby Trap. Scott's a really lovely guy. He's got a lot of interesting thoughts on performance and performance art and what makes a good show. And we talk about all of it in the episode. You're going to love it. If you haven't already, follow us on all the social media channels. Make sure that you're up to date on the newsletter. Find us by searching for Magical Thinking Podcast and by searching Art of Magic on Instagram and Facebook and all the places. Because we're there and you need to, you need to be with us because if you're not, you're missing out. We're about to relaunch the site, Art of Magic 2.0. It's not going to be called that. Uh, it's just a new, a new thing we're doing. A bunch of new features, but the one that I'm most excited about is beep. That was lame. I'm gonna leave it in though, because that's just for you guys, all my all my special people out there listening. Anyway, uh, sign up for that because it's a big deal. Also, if you're not already a patron of Magical Thinking, go to Patreon.com/MagicalThinking. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/MagicalThinking, and join that thing because it's cool. You get me doing other fun stuff. I'm finishing up a recording of Modern Magic, which is an old book. I've been reading it. Not all of it. It's like 600 pages, but, you know, the good parts. <laughs> uh, not the good parts. The parts that late people can listen to. And I just finished shooting a new video for the Style Plus tier that I'm editing now. It's going to end up being like half an hour long, but it's about how a suit should fit. And that's going to be really cool. And I've been having a good time chatting with folks that are patrons. And, of course, you can email me, podcast at artofmagic.com, anytime you want to ask me a question or give me feedback on the show. I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the show. So email me. Go join the Patreon. Make sure to go to Booby Trap if you're in Los Angeles. Or if you visit on a Wednesday, go to Booby Trap. And get into Scott Neary's episode. Oh, one more thing. The audio quality is not excellent in this episode. We had a microphone malfunction that I wasn't aware of until after we had finished recording, but I've cleaned it up for you guys. So, enjoy. Yeah, mostly. Mostly for magicians. Um, lay people listen to it too, but just generally people that are interested in performing arts and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you for the water. Yeah. Good. So how's it going? Good. Oh, is it going? Yeah, <laughs> oh, fuck. No, okay. It's good, Elliot. 
Perfect. <laughs> nice. Can we get one more, though? Just kind of... Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, tell me about the new booby trap thing. Yeah, so I'm doing... I'm work, we're working on the move, moving it to Hollywood, and I'm, like, super excited about it, or at least I was when <laughs> the concept came up. Now I'm, like, sleep-deprived. We're working... Um, shooting a video every day of me learning a different skill from a master and then like a performance skill from a master like today we did knife throwing at 8 a.m. and um, did magic and um, ventriloquism and I'm posting these videos every day so like a lot of the shooting and the editing and um, all the other logistics of getting things I just I want it to be a big show as we're moving to Hollywood mm -hmm. Yeah, Booby Trap is like, it's a circus variety show for people at home, um, people in your car. It's a, uh, it's like a music comedy show for people. If you're at work, um, Booby Trap is like, uh, not important. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay, so please <laughs> tell... That's how I describe it, <laughs> different groups of people based on their location. It makes sense, though, because you're... You're giving them what they want to hear. Yeah, focus on your work, you guys. That's right. Just you shouldn't be listening to this. Don't listen. You can keep playing it. Download it a lot, but don't. <laughs> you don't have to listen. Share with your friends, but listening yeah. to it's unimportant. Yeah, you're working. Focus on helping your boss. Well, so how did you get started? Uh, like as a small child, I would imagine Tiny Scott Neary yes. was like throwing things a lot, yeah. and then one day you caught the thing and was like, "Oh, this is my what? life now." <laughs> like you imagine me like a caveman or something. <laughs> Ooh, good uh, fire. Um, so yeah, no. Um, when I was a little kid, I I saw magic and I liked it, so I started doing magic. I was. Um, I remember going to Disney World in, when I was seven, and all I cared about was that they had a magic shop there, because I was from Columbiana, Ohio, and most people know what Columbiana, that Columbiana doesn't have a magic shop, <laughs> but um, yeah, so going to Florida, going to Disney World, and just excited about the magic, seeing a magic shop in person, and I got some tricks, I showed them to people, um, I showed him to my neighbor, and my neighbor like said, "Come into my basement." And he was this like old elderly guy. He took me into his basement and showed me like a basement full of magic tricks. And then I, he taught me stuff, and he encouraged me to start performing. And I did like banquets and birthday parties. By the time I was eleven, I was doing like I was getting paid small amounts of money to do magic shows. That's cool. Yeah, but like being from Columbia and Ohio, like. There are certain jobs that exist, and then other jobs don't. They don't believe in like performers <laughs> and stuff like that. So I, um, I had no idea that I could be a professional performer. I knew like that David Copperfield was a professional performer, and I knew there were like celebrities, but I didn't understand that those were people or that like that was a thing. Mm -hmm. So, so I got like a bunch of other jobs too. And then um, when I graduated from high school. I got full-time jobs, and um, then I met a professional juggler, Frank Olivier. He was a full-time professional juggler. You've had him on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, he, yeah, he just, like, said, go out on the street. He's really boisterous. He was 
kind of terrifying to me because he, well, I met him after a show and I was like shy kind of, I was like, Hey, so I, I juggle too, if you want to, um, pass or whatever. And then he was like, um, yeah, come on over, man. Come over to my place. I got this big place and we can play. It's great. We have all this juggling props. Oh, that'd be great. And I was like, okay. He gave me his card and I, I bought his, or either I bought his video. No, I didn't buy his, he gave me his video later. And, um, so then I was like, I didn't call him. I just didn't call him. Ran into, <laughs> ran into him at a juggling club meeting, hung out with him. I just juggled there, but was still afraid of him. And then I met some other guys that were my age and they, they were like, yeah, we're going to go jump off some cliffs into the, into a lake. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. And, um, then they were like, yeah, I think we'll go pick up Frank on the way over. So we picked up Frank and then he was like, still, he was really intimidating because I saw, I saw his show and he was great. Yeah. And then I, um, and then he went, we went and jumped off cliffs and he was like, he like really pressured me to jump off the cliff. I was afraid <laughs> to, I thought it was going to be like 10 feet or something, but it was like. 30 feet up jumping into a lake that where there were signs everywhere that said, don't do anything fun. <laughs> and so, so he was like, he was like, go, yeah, man, just go out on the street. Just start performing. I tried it a few times in Nashville and then I went, saved up money and I went across the country performing on the street because of him. Um, and that's how, yeah. So it's his fault. All this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> What was it? What was it like the first time you went out on the street? Because he um, probably didn't know what you were doing, right? Or right. had he like coached you a little bit on? Nashville is pretty cool. Like each place that you street perform is different. And I don't think it's because it's different people. I think it's because the the context of the thing is different. Mm -hmm. um, and in Nashville, it was like they block off a street, and it's very arts oriented. It's music city, so they have like. It's not just country music, all kinds of music. And, um, and they, it's very, yeah, so it's very arts oriented and the people there were supportive and they were happy and they were glad to see it, whatever. And I had fun doing shows there. Then when I, after I saved up money and then I went on the street in New Orleans, that was a different situation. It's like, it feels very crimey there. Um, it's debaucherous and weird and, it was the summertime. I didn't understand that the summer was really hot there. <laughs> and I went there in the off season when it was really hot. And um, I did my first show. It was of my own devising. Just I was like fire eating and then juggling. And then at the end, I juggled fire. I'd read some books about street performing and stuff, but I had no idea what was going on. And it was pretty terrible. Nobody like gathered around or anything, and then like crackheads are like, "Hey man, you got a shout? You got a shout? You got a dollar?" <laughs> and then, um, then I slowly um, continued to fail, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I um, then, well, the year leading up to doing street performing, I had. Um, I lived in this modified storage unit that was made for uh, to be an apartment kind of, but it was pretty much a storage unit and it was next to other storage units. 
so the neighbors were quiet, but uh, <laughs> it was like, it was weird. It was in Berea, Kentucky in this small town. And I had a TV with a VCR in it. And I had, I eat like oatmeal for breakfast, peanut butter and jelly for lunch and rice for dinner. For some reason I was just saving all the money I could. And then at, when I would eat dinner, I would sit there and, um, watch this tape that I had of Frank Olivia. I had no other tapes uh-huh. and I just watched this tape every time, every night for dinner. So when I was out on the street and nothing was working, then I was like, Oh, maybe I'll try that one thing that works. <laughs> that I know works when Frank does it. And then I ended up doing like pretty much his show on the street, not with less skill. And, <laughs> um, but it's still like work, like his stuff was so strong and, then and I did that a lot until he saw me do it, and then he was like, "Yeah, maybe it's time to uh, get your just uh, make up your own things." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's when I started doing like pancake flipping stuff, and I was doing I was playing with other props and getting hurt a lot and stuff on the street, and that was that was like I didn't know what jackass was. Uh-huh. I knew what I had watched like some videos of skateboarders getting hurt and stuff before and I thought that was awesome CKY which was before it was the same group before Jackass okay and so I I had that kind of stuff in the show and um you yeah. were intentionally hurting yourself I was in intentionally the show? yeah I had one I had this bucket like there are hat tricks where you like flip a hat and catch it on your head mm-hmm. and I was doing that with a bucket so I was like flipping a bucket up in the air like I do one flip onto the head, two flips onto the head, three flips onto the head, and I just miss it. It would slam into my head. I do three, and it would hit my head. Three, three, and it would just like get like I'd be like slowly getting exhausted as the bucket's hitting me in the head, and people are cheering and loving it. And then I finally land it, and people are like, "Yeah!" And then I'd be like, four flips." <laughs> They'd be like, "No!" And then I'd like do it right away, and they cheer, and then um, and I did like. I found a karate vest in the trash and I <laughs> just put that on and I'd have people walking by. I'd just like ask them to punch me in the chest to get a crowd. Will you please punch me in the chest? Please, sir, please just punch me in the chest. And then they'd be like, no, no, thank you. <laughs> like a stranger, like a gutter punk looking kid on the street, like asking you to punch him in the chest. And then, um, then I'd be like, okay, uh, is that your wife or did you just hire her to hang out? (laughs) And I just keep on insulting him and that would help to build a crowd. And then they, and then the guy wouldn't punch me angrily. Usually like just whatever, but then start waking up coughing. And I was like, I think I could learn a different thing to do. (laughs) Um, and yeah. And so, yeah, I took like, I did juggling and then I started producing a cooking show in San Francisco through a turn of events. Um, it was like a TV, or not a TV, it was a stage cooking show. So people would come and three nights a week I would cook a meal based on a theme like gingerbread crack house or spring break at the Vatican or something like that. And we'd, I'd cook a meal and I'd have a guest chef and I'd have like video, a video projector and I'd show little animations or things that I've filmed on the street. And then, um, and I cook a meal, a different meal every week and people would come and they get to try things if they 
there too. <laughs> it was like some things. The way I prepared things was kind of gross. Sometimes there was a lot of hand sanitizer, um, like not just for hands. <laughs> um, and that's how I started producing stuff. Okay, how did that happen? Um, Wait, before we get to that, I'll write down Crash Course. Um, what? Why did you decide to start touring on the street? I mean, what? What got you out of Columbia and Ohio, and then to San Francisco and like all? That? Oh well, I moved from Ohio to Nashville because I was a fundamentalist Christian. Um, I chose to be a fundamentalist Christian, rebelling against my atheist and agnostic mother and father. Is that real? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah. I I would um, I would obsess about things. So like I really wanted a religion that would just tell me exactly what to do and give me very mm. concrete rules. Yeah, it like it made it made reality more uh, feel more safe and stuff like that. Um, so I was fundamentalist Christian. And I went to Nashville, which is also called the Buckle of the Bible Belt, and it's like this hub for like there are a bunch of Christ. Um, Church of Christ College is there and different stuff like that. So I was trying to meet like my future wife and be there and whatever. And then that's where I met Frank Olivier. That's where he told me to go on the street. And that's where, and then I moved from there to Kentucky because there was a small town where my friend was living and I could live cheap and save money. Oh, okay. Um, so Frank told me to go on the street and that's what made me want to do it. He said, that's the best way to learn. Because you can do like five shows a day, and um, if people don't like it, they walk away. Yeah. yeah, there's no pressure. You get you really get to bang out your material. On the yeah, stream. yeah, and it's the real test. Like on the, in a theater or whatever, you if you're good, then people still clap. Or if you're yeah, if you're okay, then people still clap. And on the street, if you're good, then people will clap, but they'll won't pay you at the end. So you have to be really good mm -hmm. or you have to get the science down of like how to really trick people into paying you and I never was into that I just wanted to learn how to be better um, yeah so that's that's how I got on started doing the street and that's when I really like um, discovered who I was and like started feeling confident about myself and um, and yeah just like I was 21 when I started that and I hadn't kissed a girl and I kissed a girl in New Orleans. That was my first kiss when I was 21. So How much did you pay her to hang out with you? Awesome. <laughs> it was somebody else's wife. Okay, great. <laughs> no, she, yeah, that was like crazy. That was so, like, my brain was so fucked up. And then, um, yeah, so that's when I, like, started opening up to the world. And I'd tell people that I was Christian and then just listen to them try to convert me mm -hmm. out of Christianity. Yeah. And, um. And that was really, um, it was really eye-opening because I met a lot of people traveling and I saw a lot of good people that weren't Christian. Mm -hmm. And and I saw a lot of people that were claiming to be Christian that didn't, um, it didn't seem like that was, like they were very judgmental and a lot of the stuff that wasn't in the Bible. So, so it was like, it was a good chance for me to start reevaluating all that stuff yeah 
Yeah. Um, I grew up in Louisiana, and it's a very fundamentalist, yeah, uh, Baptist kind of place. And uh, I, I, I went through a similar thing where I was meeting better people who weren't Christians the way I was raised, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's that seems like just a better way to live. Yeah. And much less oppressive and, and sad and gross. You yeah. Know? You get to be like alive in the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that I, that resonates with me. I get that a lot. Um. <clears throat> yeah. So. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then back to Crash Course, and that's how you started producing. A yeah. Show. How did that happen? <clears throat> how did you sort of did it, did you fall into it, or did somebody go, "Hey, this this guy's talented. Let's." Yeah, there's this other magician, Paul Nathan. Mm-hmm. You know who he is. Um, so he he was running a theater in San Francisco, a small, it was like a 50-seat theater. I was producing a one-man show in another place, and he saw that I was doing that, and um, and I was doing pancake flipping. That was like the finale of my show. So he was like, yeah, if you want to, he saw that I was promoting it a lot. So yeah. he was like excited about that. And he said, hey, if you want to... Um, help promote the show, help promote our theater, and then um, do your cooking show on Tuesdays, you can do that. And I was like, yeah, my cooking show. All right. I'll be ready in two and a half weeks. And I just started doing it. And um, I had no idea. I hadn't really watched very many cooking shows or anything. So I started watching cooking shows all the time and then um, creating this format of like just weirdness and chaos juggling I just started promoting it as cooking juggling and getting hurt and I would like um fry things and I'd like flip them over with my bare hand and I'd um pull pasta out of boiling water with my hand and um smash garlic with my head and stuff like that and it was like it was really fun and the fun part was like I'd already gotten pretty good at perform. I understood entertainment on the street mm-hmm. and I understood kind of triggers for how to work with an audience and how to start to format things. But then this was like, the theater was not very good. So I rewired the theater and then I um, programmed the light board and then I figured out how to, I was a virgin. So I had a lot <laughs> of time and I, um, like edited video for the projector screen. And then I do like, as well as like cooking and cleaning and figuring out these meals and everything like, so it was, it was really exciting to me as like, I'm learning, I'm gonna be like bulletproof. I'm gonna know everything about theater. And uh, it was really, it was really cool for that. And then I, as well as like promoting the show, people would offer to help. And then I was like such a control freak that I wouldn't let them do it. Mm-hmm. and. Um, and which wasn't very healthy for me at the time, but it was a way for me to learn how all this stuff worked. Yeah. Yeah. So I, every, I had a person doing, doing tickets and a person doing the, the tech, like playing the video and the lights and everything, but the light board was already programmed. So I just told them which buttons to push, which five buttons to push. And then I had the tickets were already printed out all the, the list is already ready when the girl showed up and she just sold the tickets and then, uh, and everything else was done by me and it was completely insane. So every week I was 
creating a whole new show. It was like 70% improvised, but I had a format already put together and um, I already knew what recipes I was going to cook and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I did that for a year. Um, I did six months, one show a week, and then I started going on the weekends and I did six months of three shows a week. Okay. It seems like you were almost like busking in a controlled environment. It's kind like of. you took busking inside and then fit the space to your show. Yeah. Um, Just with yeah. the improvising and the level of interaction and seeing, you know, what happens. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that. Um, it was that, but a theater, like, changes things a lot. Um, you can slow down a lot. You can do... You can take your time. You can be... You can be not ready for whatever the next thing is and just let it happen. And, and that's really good. Um, but yeah, street was my favorite thing. It was like, it was amazing because you just start out as like, I'm just like an idiot shouting at people trying to get somebody to punch me in the chest. And then at the end I have 300 people around me who are all from different classes and everything. And they're, they all have different agendas and they all have different like view of what the world is and what that place is. And then I bring them all together as one group. And then I like end up like the hero, which is like, it's an awesome narrative to like, for people to be able to experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was like, that was awesome to me. And also, also I have like, I had like so many, um, confidence problems and stuff that I was like, that that was like really fun for me to, because I didn't have to promise people anything. Mm -hmm. I could just, I could show up and I could start out a gutter punk and end up a gutter punk if I failed, or I could just show up like that. And then I could go above and beyond. And that was like really good for me the way I was like kind of a perfectionist and weird about stuff um, to not, I couldn't really fail. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that was my favorite thing. I bust for a year. I wasn't like yeah. a, a serious busker or anything, yeah. but being on the street is so liberating because if this show doesn't work, you can do another one in 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it, it really is amazing. Um, what did you do? I was doing magic. I was doing a, a table. Yeah. I brought out a table and gathered a crowd. That was the most interesting and fun part to me was starting with nothing and then building into a crowd of 50 100 people yeah uh and and like figuring out the science of it almost and not like in a not in a gross way but you, you just do it so many times you go oh i know this trick here and this trick here and this trick here and that's sort of how you build your show you go yeah. out with an idea and then you see what doesn't work and you fix it yeah that's great yeah, yeah. So how were you fixing what you were doing on the street? And then also when you started producing your own show, what would go wrong? And you would go, oh, that was really funny, but I can't let that happen again. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think that um, I just realized that you're a real coffee fan. You have a coffee painting on your wall. <laughs> you offered me coffee and I refused it. That's okay. Uh, so this whole conversation is probably adversarial. <laughs> You've committed a faux pas in my home and this will be the last time we speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm sure this interview is all designed to destroy me. <laughs> <laughs> It was up to that question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I was, I just like for for a big stage of my career, for the big stage of like from two thousand to two thousand five. That's when I did all that stuff with the cooking show mm -hmm. from street performing. I toured with Brooks and Dunn, a country music group. You know them. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like. I was one of their, there were a few different circus acts as like their warm up thing. And we all went on stage and made chaos and people said, boo faggot. And then we like got off stage and Brooks and Dunn came on. Um, <laughs> Who was the guy that was like, let's get a bunch of weird art folks to come out before Brooks and Dunn. It was out. Brooks and Dunn because they, they, they saw Cirque du Soleil mm -hmm. and they were like, we need to do this for hillbillies. And, <laughs> and it was like, it was a genius idea. It was the highest grossing tour, a country music tour ever. And they, um, and it really worked and it was cool. Um, but they also didn't know where to get performers. Uh -huh. So I had one of those guys that I, that I went swimming with Frank Olivier, this, this guy, they saw him juggling at some party and then they were like, Hey, we, uh, we're trying to put together a tour. Can you help us find people? And he was like, yeah, I guess so. He had like a network of like four people and then he, figured it out and um i got me on the tour i wasn't really like on a national level i wasn't qualified i so many people could have gotten the job before me but they really liked me and um and then it it was like it was pretty exciting because the they the stage it was a music festival kind of thing a bunch of different bands would play toby keith keith urban uh, uh montgomery gentry all these different country music groups throughout the day and then they would come on the stage at night and the stage would be black and then I would like come out and do a handspring on the stage and then um, with two fire torches in my hands and then somebody else would come on juggling torches and then we'd pass, we'd throw back and forth, there would be a guy with a hula, uh, lasso that's on fire and somebody's breathing fire and they would play ding 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 and people would go nuts. Like the most of the audience is 15,000 people. Most of them are going crazy. We uh, then, but you can hear the people in the front row. So like the transition from street performing to that was like, I can respond to everybody in a street show because everybody hears it and they yeah. know what the thing is. But I have like 20 people in the front that I can hear that nobody else can hear. Yeah. And so you just like, you, they aren't. They don't even count as the audience. The audience is this monster, weird thing. Yeah. And um, and yeah. So so they'd be yelling stuff at us, and um, and we just completely ignore it. And I never. I, and up to that point, I hadn't really had that experience because yeah. I just kind of, I had like adults heckle me when I was a little kid doing magic shows, and I just would just get like awkward. And then I have people on the street heckle me, and I. I'd destroy them um, emotionally. I had a lot of suicides. Pretty cool. Nice. Uh, but no. <laughs> no. the idea of destroying somebody is so cocky. I just yeah. But I was like, I was mean to them and got a lot of laughs. Yeah. And um, yeah. So that was like 
that was the first like kind of theater experience. Then after, well, how did it, I mean, how did you respond to that internally? I mean, was it easy for you to just ignore that or, um, cause it wouldn't be for me. I know. Yeah. It's not, I didn't, I guess like myself, my magical thinking of it was, uh, you know, like it's like a therapy term. Or yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah I <laughs> <laughs> um, my, uh, the way I the way I thought about it was just that the I could hear the real crowd, so and that was my job to perform for them. Cool. And the other people, I was just like, "That's weird. You guys are weird. What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> like that's what you you paid like a ton of money to sit up front at this concert, and that's how you want to do it. That's what you want to do right now. <laughs> um, they probably were yelling at the regular acts too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so upset. I didn't know this was all country music. Yeah. Fuck this. <laughs> uh, Brooks and Dunn's sure takes a long time to be done. Um, Bring another one of the Keiths out. <laughs> yeah, more Keiths. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that fucking did street, did Brooks and Dunn, and then I did the cooking show and some other weird stuff and then, um, moved to LA and I was, I was kind of seeing myself as an underdog because of that whole street thing of like, and that's how I saw myself in the, in a performing realm too, of like, I when I'm around other performers, I was always like trying to prove myself and like trying to do like show them that I was good and, um, and like always like improving and like hustling so hard and watching every show I could listening to tapes of stand up all the time and just whatever, mm -hmm. um, like working so hard to be better. And then when I, and I then I had the show in San Francisco. I had my a theme song with my name in it. I had my face on a billboard outside the theater. I had and then I was doing that show. And then I went over to this burlesque show after cooking show every night, and I would headline that show. And then I was like, oh, I'm like too good in this realm. I'm like I'm doing better than everybody, or something. I just got it was like it was a different thing. I was doing really well, and I wasn't used to that. I was used to just like. Struggle. I'm gonna try to do well. Yeah. Then, so I was like, I want to get out of San Francisco, get into a bigger pond, and I came to LA. This was mid 2000s. 2005. Okay. Yeah. And I came to LA, did some street to pay the bills, and I, I got in like a one man show competition. And I tied for first right away, and I was like, I want to no, I want to be around better people, and I did shows around town and. It just wasn't, I don't know what was happening, but I wasn't around people that were pushing me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling inspired and I got a job doing graphic design at a marketing place. Um, <clears throat> and I, um, I was kind of working on a show about propaganda. So I lied my way into this job at a marketing place and then, um, okay. Like, how did that, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> how did that work? <laughs> I was just like, uh, just gloss over that. I was just like really, I was, I did a really good job of selling myself because I didn't really think that I was qualified at all for the job. Mm -hmm. And I 
<clears throat> but I like researched what the com what the marketing company was. I guess is what a person does when they care about getting a job. But I hadn't had a job for five years, so um, so I just like put together some different things that I'd done for different people, including for my cooking show and for um, my friends who I'd help with promo and stuff. <clears throat> put that stuff together. I had the way my the way my cover letter got into the boss's hands was the person filtering all the stuff from Craigslist. I sent, I sent her an email that was like, Hey, here's my resume. Um, I would, which was kind of just, it was real stuff, but not worded the way that it's, it was completely honest. And then I, uh, and then I said, here's my resume. I hope you give me a lot of money. And she thought it was cute. She thought it was funny. So she sent it over to the boss because she just thought it was funny. She didn't send it as a submission. Mm -hmm. And like, and the boss is like, oh, okay, yeah, when do we get him in for an interview? And <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got past like all these other professionals. Uh -huh. And um, I went in and I just like, she showed me a, she showed me a website that somebody, one of a designer had done for them. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like, you're, it looks like it's made for old people and the prints, the type's really small. And then this logo looks like the Radio Shack logo. She's like, really? What's the Radio Shack logo? And I was like, yeah. And she pulled it up and it looked like the Radio Shack logo. Yeah. And then I was like, just, and then I just talked about a bunch of, like, I just used a bunch of like computer words that weren't really <laughs> the right thing. And then, um, she was like, oh, wow. And I, um, yeah, talked my way into the job and did it. <laughs> and then I was terrified and then I was, this was like the opposite of street shows. It was like, <laughs> I promised a lot that I wasn't qualified for at all. And I would, I would, so I'd work all day for eight hours and then I would put the designs online on f forums and stuff and I'd get feedback from, from real designers and then I'd make modifications by the morning and I'd, I'd bring them back into work. And so that's how I was like, I wanted to learn about marketing for this job and then I, and then I was like, oh, I get a paycheck and that's pretty cool. Like it was way better than doing street shows. I was making more money than doing street shows in LA because it was tough. And um, yeah, so I was like, maybe I'll do this. I wasn't being pushed by performing anymore and this was like a terrifying new realm. It might be fun. And um, then I got a call from this World Busker Festival in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand. It's the world's biggest street performer festival. And they said, would you like to come perform this? Uh, Peter Sweet told me about you. And I was like, I don't know. What do I have to do? And she was like, we'll send you a contract. You sign it. Then we'll send you plane tickets. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did that, signed it, went out. And it was amazing. It was like best performers in the world. Um, just incredible performers, great shows. The crowds were insane. They were just like, everybody comes expecting street performers and they bring a bunch of money. And it was like so much fun. And then the people in town, on the first night I'd met a bee farmer and he took me to all his bee boxes all over the <laughs> countryside. It was great. And then uh, people at restaurants were giving me like t-shirts and food, free food and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. This is like, this is one, this is what I'm meant to do. Yeah. And to this is like there are 
really good people that there is a lot of room to grow. Yeah. And even if there wasn't, there's still a reason to grow. Sure. Like even if, even if uh, I was the best performer in the world, then there would still be a reason to push harder to be better. Um, so that's what, like I was about to give up performing and that turned it around for me. Um, and then now I do booby trap. <laughs> That's what we came from. So it, it started as an open mic, right? Yeah. I talk a lot on this show about how magicians don't have a place to go and be bad. Yeah. There's the magic no, castle. It, I know. That makes me so upset. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Yes, that is what happens. You're right. That's not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> but yeah, there's no like... It's it, there's no forgiving environment for people to try out new right. material like there are for comedians or comedians. <laughs> right. It's like so. There's no. I I don't understand unless you're street performing. I don't understand how you get better as a variety artist. Yeah. Outside to, of just in your room. You can go to open mics. You can go to comedy open mics. You can go to music open mics. You can go to poetry open mics. You, if you're the only magician there, then they'll be like, well, I guess so. And if you show them like, if you show them love for what they do and um, respect and you show up and do it, then you do it. Like, that's what I'm like, I just get, I just perform as much as, that's what, that's what I did at least until like 2005. I was performing as much as I could at every single opportunity, like church basement. Yeah, I'm in a bowling alley, whatever. I'll do like, any show because because I love that feeling of like I'm gonna be bulletproof I'm gonna be awesome once I if I do this thing and it's imp- impossible then this is gonna be great I did um, when I was working with Brooks and Dunn I was also like when we went out to different cities I would try to talk people into hiring me like I'd go to the biggest comedy club in the town and I'd be like yeah I'm performing at Pepsi Arena this weekend and I just want to like I just like to do a spot real quick. And that was like my first stand up. I did just straight stand up. Mm-hmm. I did that was the first time I did it. Um, was in Boston at the Comedy Connection, I guess. I did like a, t- a ten minute showcase spot, but I just like told him that I was at the Pepsi Arena and that's it. <laughs> I'd love to do a spot, and he's like, "People don't just walk in here and." I don't just book people that just walk in here and tell me that they're good. And I was like, that's okay. You can still book me. (laughs) And he was like, seven o'clock tomorrow. Don't be late. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And I did it. It was really fun. How'd it go? It was good. Um, I'd done like open mic. Uh, I'd done a little bit of open mic stand up, but Uh I hadn't done for a real audience. I hadn't done comedy and I knew I'd worked a lot of jokes. So I had kind of an idea of what jokes would work. And then I, and then when I was in there, it was like so easy. It's a comedy club audience. They want to laugh. They want comedy. Yeah. And compared to the street, it was like so nice. And I brought in like my timing with that stuff and, and I didn't get to, so I never had the chance to experience that. Like having the jokes that comics like giggle at a little bit, or whatever, and then having, being able to perform it with an audience and be like people that are ready for it and 
So that was like really fun to do that. And I was doing different shows in Nashville. I did like, I think I did 15 different music venues. Cause I would just walk in at first I was calling all these venues and saying, Hey, can I perform before bands? And they were like, ah, oh, no, nah, I don't think so. And then I just started showing up at the venues and talking to the band and saying, Hey, could I do five minutes before you go on? And they're like, what? And I was like, I do. I'm a juggler. I'm not a, magi- a musician. I just like to go on, do five minutes. It'll be awesome. I'll be like, it's really funny and fun. And then it's a great way to start the show off for you. And so I started doing that. And then I would do like 15 minutes before bands sometimes and stuff. One place I did, like, it was just, I don't know what topic we're talking about. I haven't slept very well much. <laughs> uh, is this, yeah, no, you're good. Are just we supposed keep to going. talk about me or is it? You could just keep, just keep going. We're doing, we're doing great. <laughs> I just had a moment where I... I don't know. Okay. You just out of body experience. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. My ego is just taking the driver's seat. Um, there was this like one that I remember was like, uh, it was, there were sports playing on all the TVs and I, uh, people paid to get in to see this band and I went on for 15 minutes beforehand. I, I just like, was yelling at people and like trying to figure out how to change this room. Um, people were watching TV and stuff and then like made some guy with, made fun of some guy with a mustache and then people were like, okay. And I just kept making fun of all these people. And then people were like really into it. And then I was like, Hey, let's turn off the TVs. And, and then like one guy at the bar was like, no way. And then everybody else was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, at the end of my set, they passed a hat. They passed like a, I didn't ask for it, but the booker like passed a bucket around the audience. I made like 70 bucks. Like just, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to make any money. I was just getting on stage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my experience. Like there are a lot of excuses to not do, to not perform, but you just get up and do it. Like, and that's how, that's how I'm, that's why I kind of think that like classes, classes are good for certain gaining certain skills. But as far as entertainers, the badass entertainers that I know are like they're just hungry and mm-hmm. they just want to get up. And there's no advice that you're going to give them. There's no like, there's no lesson that you're going to teach them that can that can duplicate what what their passion, their hunger for the stage and that adrenaline and that like whatever working on that stuff is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's my opinion on class is that thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I mean like I, I you know, I yeah. Know. So it started as an open mic, booby trap started as an open mic, which I thought was like, um, I thought it was kind of good. And then after three weeks or something, people were, there were 27 acts in the show and they showed up and signed up and I was like, Oh, we can't, something different has to be done. And I never, I didn't like open mics. So I was like hosting it like a show. I had like the same amount of energy I have now is jumping all around going, it's an open mic people. Wow. We are having fun. And then, um, and so I just treated it like an open mic and then I, the second week I called it a platinum open mic and people were like, what's that? And I was like, it's platinum. And then, <laughs> um, I wouldn't offer them any difference in show or anything. And then, um, yeah, then it became booby trap 
which was like a real booked show. And, and that was like more in line with what I want to do anyway, because I think that we need a place where people are good and where the shows are really entertaining and consistent every time. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's more, that's what feeds me. That's, that's like that experience that I had in New Zealand. That's, that's what gets, I think that's what really feeds good entertainment. It isn't places to work on new stuff because there are plenty of places for that. You can do that. You could do that in your living room. You could just tell people to come over or you could do it on the street or you can do it, walk into a mall and do it until you get kicked out or whatever. But I, but, um, my, my bottled water cap, just to uh, tell you guys what happened, bottled water cap just fell on the floor. Okay, back to what I was saying. <laughs> uh, you can go anywhere and, and work stuff out. Yeah, yeah, you can go anywhere and work stuff out, but um, there's there aren't very many places where you like you really feel pushed to do a good job um, as an entertainer. Where where um, I wanted, and it's it's beginning that it's beginning to be that thing where people are submitting a lot of people that are submitting that aren't qualified to be in the show mm-hmm. and people are excited about being in it and um and i think that's that's awesome i think that's what pushes entertainment forward because that's like yeah it makes people feel like they need to work harder and um to please me <laughs> so it's, i feel like i'm pretty good at my entertainment standards <laughs> what entertainment is what is it? What's entertainment? What is what is what's good? What's good entertainment? What um, are the criteria for good entertainment? It uh, it affects an audience in the way that it's supposed to. So um, I think of like performance and entertainment. I'm trying to. I'm I'm really into systems and figuring out formulas for things or ways to think about things. And, um, so I think of like performance and entertainment as two different things. Performance is like, uh, is a thing that you can do by yourself in, and, or you can do it in front of an audience, not expecting any response or whatever. Mm. And, um, there are a lot of people that do art, artistic things as performance. Mm-hmm. But entertainment is something that that really triggers a certain response in an audience that's um, planned, and so so what a good a good entertainer is somebody that can do that extremely consistently mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of different audiences, and it's difficult because audiences are very sophisticated now. They know they've seen a lot of things on TV. Everybody's like a stand-up comedy expert, um, and every yeah, so it's it's difficult with a sophisticated audience. I don't think it's a matter of attention span problems. Mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of audiences just knowing stuff. Yeah. So there are people that can play that can play in front of a audience who hasn't seen very many live shows, and they can kill every time in front of those kind of audiences, but they can't kill in front of an um, like an opera crowd or a whatever crowd, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's what 
that's what a great entertainer is, is that, that person that can show up and do, even if it's like, I want to make people cry or I want to make people think, or I want to make people laugh or whatever it is. It's that person that can show up and do that every time or very consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, super important to think about the context for which you're performing. Yeah. Like, uh, as an entertainer, the, especially if you're going into somewhere new, like if you, like when you were doing crash course, you created the atmosphere, you right. created the environment and people came into your space. Right. But if you're going up into someone else's show or someone else's venue or like on the street, you just have to know what people expect Yeah. and then either subvert their expectations in a way that is positive to them or reinforce the context. Right. And you also have to know what they're experiencing. So, with like an aerialist, somebody that's doing trapeze or something like that, they don't necessarily have to know. You don't. It doesn't have to be complete. You don't have to know. Every, you don't have to do every aspect of being a great entertainer to be a great entertainer. But um, I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to know exactly what the audience is going through to be a trap to do a great trapeze artist, because you're like you're putting so much other stuff out there as far as like energy and effort and pain and danger mm-hmm. so people so people get that experience from you in the in the live setting but um as far as like what michael rayner does or some other like comedian they have to kind of know what it's really helpful i think to know what the chairs feel like that the people are sitting in that what they experience just outside the door um what it, what time of day it is, what what that means as far as like did somebody did these people just come off work or are these people um, on vacation or what like all that stuff matters. It all it's all included. It's not um, playing off a script like perfecting a script or whatever. I saw this. Um, I performed at a pot dispensary place and it was like this back room and it was just full of marijuana smoke and. I was trying to watch the comedians a little bit, but I couldn't do it because I had to juggle knives later. I couldn't stay too long because I was like getting, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, But um, this one comedian, he's like doing all these heady jokes. These people don't, they can't pay attention very long. They want to laugh, but they're just like kind of, they don't get these like really complicated jokes. Yeah. And then he like, um, then he says like, I'm I'm pretty uncomfortable up here because this is a smoky room and I'm a Jew, and then, and then everybody laughed. People loved it, and he was like, "Oh, you like Hitler jokes, but you don't like smart jokes about my wife." <laughs> and then he went back to telling smart jokes about his wife <laughs> for the rest of the set. <laughs> and I was like, it was just like the epitome of like of that mindset that people have of not not of not wanting to do the thing for the audience that the audience wants but like not only did he know usually they don't know what the audience wants or whatever but he knew exactly what they wanted he told them he knew what he want, what they wanted and then he didn't give it to them <laughs> and they didn't laugh very much then yeah and then I went on and killed I just like scared them a bunch and <laughs> yelled loud things and one word jokes and then got out of there. Um, 
They didn't remember it, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) How did you develop your sense of humor? Because on stage at Booby Trap, your your timing is great, but like a lot of the things that you say are, they're like perfect little comedy nuggets. Yeah. I don't don't know how to explain it. Maybe you could do a better job of, it's kind of almost meta, like the kind of jokes that you make. I don't notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, please, please tell people. Okay, um, the way, um, there's this thing called 101 Ways to Improve a Gag. It's written by Scott Meltzer. It's a, it was a Word document that he emailed around to people. I don't think he made it a book or anything. It's very simple. And it's 101 just, like, different rules of, like, if you shorten, if you shorten the joke, then it's more powerful. Um, so write a joke and then take out words and then it gets funnier. If you use a funny accent, you can make a joke funnier. If you um, use hard consonants like kumquat instead of lemon, then it'll be funny. It's a funnier word. So it's 101 of these rules. And when I was when I was starting to write a lot of jokes, when I did stand up, when I did the stand up open mic thing, I was doing. Five minutes, I'd write five minute new minutes every week, like of just one-liner jokes pretty much, really fast jokes. And I would write the joke, I'd go through this list one at a time, and I'd try to make the joke better through the whole list. And um, that's what I was doing every week. So um, then when I, and I, and I did that, on, I had that when I was on the street too. So I was like, I would take other street performers' jokes, other street performers would have jokes, and then I'd like figure out how to make it better and then steal it and make it a lot better and people would laugh. And then I'd, um, basically I just stole a lot of things. Booby Trap was being run in, in Iowa, but I destroyed that guy and took his, <laughs> with some jokes about his wife. And then I took his show. No, um... Yeah, so I took that, like, I was doing that filter with written jokes over and over again, and then and then I would, then I just started doing it in my head. It would just happen in shows, so I would, I'll see somebody, like, with a weird hat, and I would just, I'll write a joke in my head while I'm talking, and then I might come back to it, I might refine it, and then, and then say it, or I'll, I'll see that person fidgeting, and I'll just be ready and just like, wait, okay, they're going to heckle me. And then I'll just um, use that joke that I already wrote for that. So, yeah, that's how I make jokes. <laughs> you just internalize the process then. Yeah. And it's like, it's this filter that's running a lot for me. I'll be like, and that's what, that's where my, my speech, the way I talk, I stutter kind of, and I, um, delay and I eliminate words that aren't, you know, so, (laughs) so that's what, that's, that's where that comes from. It's like not, it's not just cause that's the way I talked always. It's like, I started, I started doing that filter on myself all the time and, and it became like speech pattern. I was, I realized that I don't have to say the things that I don't have to say all the things and I don't have to use normal speech patterns. I don't have to whatever. And if I do this, it's more strategic to getting more laughs and, 
and getting my point across faster and putting more power into whatever I'm trying to do with the audience next. Um, and uh, yeah, so that stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there are a lot of lulls in the podcast. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot. Let's have one. Okay. I ate a spoonful of peanut butter the way over. Yeah. What kind of peanut butter? I'm done with the lull. I'm done with the lull. <laughs> Can't do it anymore. Deliberate lulls. I. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so let's get into the heart of it. My parents beat me at every race until I was seven, <laughs> and that's okay. why you became a performer. Yeah, <laughs> powerful stuff. Yeah, adults are fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, Booby Trap moved. So it, it became a real show. Yeah. And now it's moved to Hollywood. Yeah. Very suddenly. Why yeah. so suddenly? What happened? What was it's the... fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't really suddenly. It just seemed sudden. It was sudden. Yeah. So um, we started out in Echo Park. We did that for a year. They tore down the building. The original idea was, hey, why don't you do an open mic for the place is only going to be open for three months. They're going to tear it down. So I was like, okay, I'll do a three month open mic thing. <clears throat> started doing it, it became a real show. They never tore down the building like, for a year. So it just like, so I just kept going. I just kept showing up and doing it again. And then after that year, I was like, okay, it's a show and people want it, so let's move it. And we moved over to Fado Doe in mid-city LA, and which isn't a place if people are wondering at home um, or at work. There, it's, it's, this, it's a neighborhood that a lot of people don't know about. And that always... A lot of people talked to me about that and said that it was an inconvenient place. People didn't understand where it was when I explained it, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't. It didn't feel like totally safe all the time, and so especially because it was a strange neighborhood. Like if it was that neighborhood and people had been there a lot, then they'd be a lot cooler with it. Yeah. But um, these show producers or these uh, club owners, the Houston brothers, they came to the show. With Blake Voigt, magician mm-hmm. Blake Voigt, a popular TV magician Blake Voigt, and um, recently married magician man Blake Voigt, and they um, they liked the show. They had fun. They started talking to me about their show, their uh, Black Black Rabbit Black Rose, Rose show on yeah. in Hollywood, and then um, so I was like talking to them about that. I was trying to advise them, like giving them helping them find performers and stuff. And then um, one day um, Mark Houston said, would you ever consider moving Booby Trap to King King? And I'd know, I knew King King, this club in Hollywood. And um, I was like, yes, definitely I would consider it. And <clears throat> so we went in, walked through, um, and then... Fado Doe, the current venue for Booby Trap, booked a film shoot. That's what they do. Like they were, that place was in La La Land, the movie, and it was in Arrested Development and stuff. That's how they make most of their money there. So they booked a film shoot for a Wednesday, the twenty eighth of June, and I was like, okay, let's just 
begged the Houston brothers to put booby trap in there. So I just texted and texted and texted and texted forever. I sounded like a desperate guy, like just like, hey, uh, I think this is really gonna work great if we just if we just make this. I think this would be cool. And uh, I had a really good time with you. Could we uh, see if this goes any further? Whatever. And then I just kept sending them texts, and then. Finally, I sent this text that was like, look, if there's anything that's keeping you from saying an exuberant yes, then just let me know. We'll try to work it out. And I was like, I can't send another text. I feel so desperate. <laughs> and then two days later, he was like, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> this is all text. <laughs> and then we, um, and so I was like, bingo, here we go. And I, Start and it was like that was like three weeks ago or something and we're moving in next week. Yeah. So I just like okay, let's start the machine running and figuring out. And now because it's because it's built up to a bigger show, it's it's such a responsibility to me. Like I want the performers to come in and feel comfortable. I want the audience to know that it's going to be a badass show every time. So um, yeah, so it was like. It's, it's a real hustle right now. We're really promoting it, trying to get a big audience in there and trying to trying to figure out how to iron out all the creases and make sure that everything's like super awesome, better than the last place even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's in a great neighborhood. It's right on right in the tourist area of Hollywood Boulevard. <clears throat> um, yeah. And that's like, that's what I'm experiencing right now too is that the, the danger of that feeling because just like I guess that the thing about when I what I was saying about not wanting to promise much and wanting to over deliver that's like I'm in this place of adulthood right now where I'm not that isn't a thing anymore yeah that was a thing that I did for a long time to try to diminish people's expectations of me I dressed like like a gutter punk I was like um I had a crazy haircut. I was, um, I was just doing my one my my pancake show most of the time, and just trying to like get booked as a solo act and not not be not have people depend on me for anything. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, I'm helping people set up parties. I'm creating different events and shows and all kinds of stuff, and then. I have all these performers that depend on me for this thing and I have all these audience members that depend on me and um, and now as I'm moving to Fado, or to King King I'm really feeling the pressure of that and I'm feeling those like voices in my head of like telling me that any success that I achieve is going to be like death for me pretty much that's how I see it see like if I if I push too hard if I go too far then I'm gonna let a lot of people down and that's gonna be I think as a kid I I felt like if I let my parents down ever that was I was not worthy of love and not um, I was not gonna exist anymore I guess so so yeah this is like I'm really pushing to be outside of my comfort zone and really and it's really amazing too because I'm doing the stuff that I dream of doing which is like making great entertainment for a lot of people and helping I'm helping good performers to get booked other places and um, which isn't the standard 
of who gets booked places. Um, usually the people that are good salesmen get booked at places and the great performers are sitting at home. Yeah. And um, not, not usually. Yeah, usually, I guess. And yeah, so it's like, it's a, yeah, personally, it's, it's a really powerful time for me. It's really um, exhausting and um, terrifying. And, but at the same time, I feel a lot of power and a lot of um, reassurance. Mm-hmm. And I've been, and the past like four years or something have been this kind of process of discovering this stuff and like challenging my comfort zone in small ways in order to get the things that I want. That's great. Yeah. How has your fiance helped? Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Uh, has, I mean, how has she played into this? Uh, oh man. Um, my fiance. Cause I mean, that's like, that's the biggest don't let a person down. Thing, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, my fiance uh, Laura Michelle Hughes uh, from she was uh, on Mamma Mia's North American tour and she trained at NYU and Groundlings and she's just a genius entertainer herself she um, well I met her because because I was working on myself and I prepared myself to be better for relationships and she was the, like uh, she was the first girl I dated of her type, like I, w- I had another type where I was, um, she, she seemed really nurturing and kind immediately. Mm-hmm. And those are the, those are the aspects I looked for in, in a person. And, and so that's what, that's what I found in her. And I hadn't, I hadn't sought that in other people that I dated. So, um, she brought that to me so much and like, she would give, she gives me compliments that I have no, I like, I had no idea like that those things existed in me. And she tells me things about myself that I didn't know. And she like, um, is so like that really, that really helped me a lot to be encouraged and like to have unconditional love and like support and like knowing that things are going to be okay when I fail and when I do weird stuff and, um, yeah, and then she, and then creatively, she has like all these. She'll come in just like we don't we don't really work together very well a lot of times. We're like we have trouble because she's like a, from a theater background and I'm from the streets. Mm-hmm. So so she has like this very collaborative thing, and then I'm such a, like a loner, like virgin person. I'm not a virgin anymore, but that's still kind of like. I stayed alone for a long time and yeah. I worked alone for a long time. So it's hard for me to collaborate and hard for me to listen and just be open about ideas a lot of times. So we have trouble working directly together a lot of times, but then she'll just come in with these like brilliant little ideas of like, I think the open mic should have a name and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> but like, they're like game, ch- like they change everything. They're yeah. Like, fulcrums for big um big improvements and then she like she was like you have a lot of dudes in the show and it's true i had i didn't want like a ton of dudes but 
it's like a bunch of white guys in variety entertainment. Yeah. And she was like, why don't, why not have women? So then I started actively pursuing women, not uh, pursuing, like <laughs> I started actively trying to find women and different um, minority performers and, and, and cultivating that too. Mm -hmm. Like, so she's, she's got a lot of heart and, um, she has a lot of like, um, idea of how to be kind to people and how to be kind to me. Like she thinks a lot about comfort and stuff and I don't usually think about that stuff very much. So it's helped me get more comfortable, have, have an apartment that's more livable, have like take care of myself better and yeah. stuff like that. And that's been really crucial. And then just having her be there and like, she's such a genius. And then she says like positive things to me and I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> I guess things are okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then she comes and performs a booby trap whenever I can get her. And she's amazing. and Hilarious. Inspiring. Yeah. yeah. She's the best comedy musician that I know of right now. Um, so yeah, that's part of how she's helped me. The, yeah, I'm like, um, this comfort zone stuff and like responsibility and all that, like we had talked about, we dated for two years, I think before I proposed to her and on my birthday last November, it was election day, November 9th. Our election had happened the day before. And so first day knowing the news and um, yeah, so that was like, that was crazy. I wasn't super like myself. I don't, it's all chaos to me. It's like predicting the weather. I don't like, I don't know what a different leader is going to do really for our country, but um but a lot of people were upset and that was really, that was heavy. And then I went and in the morning going to do a TV show spot for booby trap, then planning on going to go to do booby trap at night. And I got a call from her parents and her parents were like, happy birthday. And I was like, fuck it, let's do this. And I just asked them if I could, if I could have her hand in marriage and I was terrified. And then they like, they're Catholic and they, uh, he was like, let me, I I'd like to talk to you about this. I have some, I need to put some thoughts together. And I was like, okay. And so I had to call him the next day and stuff. But I was like, I just, I'm just jumping. I'm just like, my idea of what, what's safe is not really accurate. So uh -huh. yeah, that's, that's one of the big leaps I made trying to do that. He had some positive reinforcement. Yeah. I guess. She said, yeah. <laughs> she said, yes, yes. She was excited. Um, and, yeah. There's, yeah, there's plenty of positive reinforcement. If you look for it, if you look for negative reinforcement all the time, then you find that really easily. Yeah. That's what I did for a long time. Um, yeah, so, Booby Traps are moving. Hollywood. And, I don't know. It's really cool. Are you so focused on it right now that you're not even thinking about what happens next and afterwards? And um, everything's through texts with the with the owners. Okay. So I haven't been able to 
I got in there for the one walkthrough before we even talked about before is even a thing. Yeah. And um, um, then I haven't been in there since, so I don't know. <laughs> there are a lot of questions I don't know the answers to, and yeah, so it's pretty. In, right now, we have a list of all the questions that we're going to ask eventually when we can get in. A list of all the things we need to do when we walk through, because it's been a, it's been closed for a year and a half. They haven't. It doesn't look like they did anything since they closed it. So it's just like all this old equipment sitting there. I don't know what it's whether it works or not. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need to run in um, on Wednesday and get everything set up and all that stuff. And meanwhile, I'm promoting like crazy until I can finally get in there and do that physical work. And um, yeah, so I don't know what'll happen beyond that. It's uh, it's total mystery, but I know that. Um, booby trap is kind of like it's a thing now it's a it's not just it's not just something I'm creating each time it's like a thing it's it's got a community around it and people know what it is and so I see that thing as a thing that I need to take care of and the um, moving in uh, wait oh and I see so I see like going to Hollywood as a good thing good for that thing I see it as good for Booby Trap. I see it as like an opportunity for tourists to be walking by and maybe see things or just people knowing where it is or easier parking and stuff like that. Um, the venue, Fedodo, was awesome. It was really cool and funky and neat. And they were super supportive and kind. But the neighborhood in Hollywood is just like, it sounds better and everything. Yeah. So um, I'm really excited for the potential that that has for Booby Trap and hopefully becoming more self-sustaining in itself so that I can pursue more other stuff and make more, more shows and um, keep that thing going as a group. It's just like, great. I don't want it to make money for me. I I just love what it is right now. It's awesome. I love it. I tell everybody about it. I don't go often, but I tell everybody to go and I, uh, I think it's so great. It's so fun. Thank you. It really is. I mean, I went with Brett. Brett took me the first time. Yeah. Uh, when it was in Echo Park. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And it was amazing. And, like, it, it, there's no there's no way to properly prepare someone for the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's unlike anything. Like, you can't describe to someone what it is other than it's a variety show. Right. It's amazing. Um, Thanks. Really yeah, funny. Really, I, I really um. We even as even when it was an open mic, I wanted it to be like a really good place to do shows. I wanted it to be great for the performers and for the audience. And open mics are usually neither. And uh, so I wanted it to be like this this really cool thing. And then even when it became a show, people were like. Maybe you should take out the four-minute limit per act. Maybe because some people aren't going to want to do four minutes, and maybe you should do this thing and this thing. And then I was like, "Oh, that that stuff actually works. I like the way that works." And then I like I liked taking out all the tech, all the um, like ROI. You know what ROI is? Like return on investment. Mm-hmm. Like how much effort or time or money you put into something, and then how much you get out of it. Yeah, and like. I'm fascinated with that stuff. So when I see somebody 
producing a show where a performer has to fly across the country, rent a car, stay in a hotel, um, they have to do a tech rehearsal, they have to buy equi special equipment, they have to do this stuff. All these people are involved and then they do 30 minutes and they drive back to their hotel, return the rental car, fly back home. Like, all that stuff is a lot of energy for a show. And that still happens and I still do those shows. But um, I wanted to do, like, I, I don't think the audience is getting the result of that. Mm -hmm. Like, they're great entertainers, but most, most situations that entertainers are in aren't really set up for them to be great anyway. Mm -hmm. So you don't need an awesome entertainer for a shitty show where everybody's in a food coma after an awards show in their company or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I wanted booby trap to like, just be like complete, like force to power, like get like performers come in, they dump off their music at the sound booth. They go on stage, do their thing. They don't even like, there's no, there's no like, Oh, the, suddenly they're on stage. They're just like in the audience. They walk up on stage, do their thing, kill, walk off stage. And that's, that's it. And, um, so that's like, that's what I wanted the show to be. And I wanted it to be like, um, also I loved like watched some videos of the rat pack mm -hmm. and they just like, they've done a million shows and they're really comfortable together and they know, and they like joke around with each other. And then like the original Dean Martin roasts, the comedy central roasts aren't good at all. They're no, not, they're awful. nobody's friends or anything. <laughs> The Dean Martin roasts are amazing. Everybody loves each other, and they're like, and they're really pumped to be on stage with each other, and they want to make each other laugh, and I love that. So I love like that kind of. I wanted that kind of feeling in Booby Trap too, mm -hmm. and like people, performers that I really like show up, and they, um, they go, oh okay, all right, game on, and they get pumped about getting up on stage and like. I can do more than that guy did in four minutes. I can do, I can get a standing ovation or I can get like, people are going to be spitting out their drinks yeah. like, or whatever. And I love that. I love that like motivation and that excitement. And then you've, then the audience totally gets that feeling. They get that energy and they, um, they get to see something really special in this like unusual place. And, um, it doesn't seem like it's made for everybody. <laughs> I feel good. How do you feel? Uh, pretty good. Again? Yeah. I feel a little scared, I guess. A little scared? Yeah. Scared about that. I feel scared that people will hear this and then not um, they'll judge me and that I will, uh, and then I've said something to offend somebody or something like that. Or that, like, people think, man, he's arrogant, but he's not that really, he's not really that smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I have some fear. I have some joy, a lot of joy. I'm really grateful. That you asked me to do this. <laughs> my my pleasure. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to influence all these people out there at work or in their car or at home and uh, and and give them um, all the, a bunch of love and stuff like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty pumped about live entertainment and I, I really want to make it better and I... I hope I am encouraging to other people and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. It seems like you're you're leaving a lasting mark on the variety arts performance, at least in, in L.A., certainly. But I, I would imagine that the community is small enough that people yeah. hear, they hear lore of this booby trap yeah. show. Yeah. Have you found that to be true, that, like... Yeah, a lot of people spreads? follow the stuff on social media and they know what booby trap is and what it's up to. And, um, then a lot of people from out of town come like, I have friends all over the world that are performers. And when they come to LA, they like to check in and come and do a thing. And then friends of friends come and it's, yeah. So it's been, so that kind of, yeah, it's like a disease, like people are carriers of booby <laughs> trap. Um, and yeah, it's pretty cool. And like, it started out as being kind of me. It was like all my friends, like I was telling people about it. I was making phone calls all week, like just calling all these people and saying, what, she left. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was making phone calls like all week, like telling people thanks. I would like thank performers for coming out and I'd ask them what to do better with the show and stuff like that. And I, and then I'd book other performers by calling them. And then, um, and so everybody at the show was, or just audience members, I'd call up people, other people, and ask them to come watch the show. And then when, and then like strangers started showing up, and I was like, who are you? And they were like, oh, I'm friends with the performer, that performer. Then an other level of strangers started showing up that was like friends with somebody that had come to the show or somebody that had seen it online. And then more strangers and more strangers like from distant things and then and same with performers like they'd find out they had no idea who I was but they knew what the show was and that was like really cool and and now it's like it's getting a little easier for me in that way because um, I had to I felt like I had to book all the acts I had to ask all the acts to do it because they were kind of doing it to hang out with me and to, to be with me or to do my show. But now it's like a thing that people want to do and people want to be around. And I think that's really awesome. So that means like Justin Wellman guest hosted on uh, last at the end of last month and he was awesome and people loved it and they didn't feel disappointed that I wasn't there. And, um, and I'll have other guest hosts, not because I want to get out of it, but because um, that just happens. And, and that's like, that's really cool to me because I felt really guilty the first time I couldn't make it to the show. Mm -hmm. I felt like everybody would be disappointed in that. Um, um, it wouldn't be a good show. And that's what, should I just keep talking? You yeah. want to be done? No, I don't want to be done. <laughs> right. I think, uh, uh, 
the I always try, I tried to make it a good show, like, and I tried to make it a dependably good show. So people kept saying, like, you got to share your lineups. You got to tell who's going to be performing at the next show. And um, I don't like that as mm. as a way to get people in the door. I wanted booby. I wanted people to come for booby trap and then get surprised by the things that they saw. And I because a comedy club will promote like. Damon Wayans is here this week. So then you go to see Damon Wayans, but you don't go to the comedy club. Yeah. And you aren't going for comedy. You're not going to it as a trusted source for entertainment. Mm-hmm. So then they have to keep bringing in people that have big names or that are famous that aren't necessarily... Some people aren't even comedians. They just they bring in like, oh, you saw this guy on Ellen uh, because his granddaughter is dead. And then... Uh, <laughs> So then he's booked and yeah. he brings a bunch of people in and then they, and then they start giving away tickets. So, and, and having a two drink minimum. So then you're valuing the alcohol. Mm-hmm. You're putting a value on the alcohol, but you're not putting any value on the show. You're putting value on seeing a certain person, their face, but you're not putting any value on what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted booby trap to be, this thing where people could like every single Wednesday they know like if somebody's in town I can bring them to the show or um, or I'm I don't have anything to do tonight I want to do something great I'll go to booby trap I know it's worth taking a shower and stuff <laughs> um, yeah so so that was like yeah that's why it's starting to work it's, it's starting I'm, I'm pretty happy with people understanding that and Stuff like that. People keep asking. People keep asking me to post lineups and tell them about the lineup of what the show, who's coming up in the show, and people keep because they expect that from other places. And, yeah. Um, but I see it like if um, if you open up a fridge and a kid sees that there's orange juice in the fridge, and you you know that there's ice cream in the freezer, then the better gift would be to give them the ice cream, and not the they don't want, they just want something sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I give them the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show, the show seems really easy too. When you're, when, as a, as a, uh, just an a, attendee of the show. Yeah. It feels very comfortable. It feels like all the performers there are buddies. Like what you were talking about, the Dean Martin show. Like it's a very positive, uh, it's just a good atmosphere, and it feels very easy. Do you have like a, a not a format? I, there is a format, but do you have like an idea of how to structure whatever your set list, or not your set list, but the performers that night? Do you go like, oh, okay, this guy does this and this does this? Yeah, I'm starting to learn rules of like how to pace the show out. And Stefan Haves helped me a lot. He's like a he's a director that works with Cirque du Soleil and stuff. He's he's a genius. Like in the variety, and he, he directed Justin Wilman's show at LA Live, and he's like, um, he's a genius at like at show flow and like understanding how to how entertainment works, how to deal with different entertainers and and stuff like that. So he's the best in the world at, at that. Like if you if anybody has a variety show or anything like a circus show, or whatever, he's the absolute best in the world. Um, because because he connects with the audience, he understands what who they are, and he he's seen a million shows, and he um, 
he really tries to like push it and, and affect them. And then also he modifies the show uh, based on what's happening. So, um, what I forget. Oh yeah. I'll just talk about Stefan for a second. Yeah, please. The first time I saw him was in San Francisco at Teatro Zanzani. It's this dinner theater that he directed for six years and it's in a tent and Spiegel, uh, absinthe is like, is kind of based on that idea. Um, of a Spiegel tent and um, but he did this he did this circus show and I I was doing my cooking show at the time and somebody invited me and gave me a ticket to the director's table which was like it's dinner theater so everybody's eating at normal tables and then there's a table in the back where the director can sit and eat and watch the show and I sat there and he was there and he was just like talking to every act as they were coming on as they were coming on a stage and he would like nudge them in different ways like um there's like a a, a clown a, a clown that's super like egotistical or whatever mm-hmm. and he would just like boost that boost him up and give him like just a slight course correction that would that would change you'd see he'd go on stage and you'd see what he did and yeah like, it was crazy just in one show i saw like uh i don't know eight different acts and they and he, he nudged each of them and you could see the effects of the thing. Or he like he had like a little joke tweak and he would tell it to somebody um, or whatever. And it was it was incredible to see that and like see how well it worked. And he just like he's he's also really good at a lot of time performers are perfectionistic, so they'll um, so they'll start refining an idea before they have the idea. They'll be like, mm. oh, yeah, I want to do, like, a cups and balls routine, but I think I'll do it like this. And before they even try doing a cups and balls routine, they'll start doing, like, uh, they'll be like, oh, I'll do it with coconut shells, and that'll be really cool. And then I'll, I'll do, like, and maybe it'll just be, like, it'll be four coconut shells instead of three, like, whatever, you know? Like yeah. the, and then you just go and go, and you never make the act. <laughs> and when you do, it's just confusing to everybody. Um, so he's really good at just, like, having, like, He's like, okay, you're gonna walk, uh, walk over there, and you're gonna kick that stool over, and then um, you, you get really angry at the stool for falling over, and you walk out. And he gives that direction to, if he gives that direction to an idiot or like somebody that hasn't been on stage a million times, then that person will kick the stool over, go and then walk off. And he, if he gives it to a genius clown, that clown will make a thirty-minute amazing thing out of it where he's mad at the stool and he's mad at the audience for laughing and then he's mad at the stool and then he tears the stool apart and he ends up eating it and fucking it or whatever, like, whatever happens, like, he gives that, he, he's really good at finding a simple, doing the first simple thing and just throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he helped me a lot in finding the format of Booby Trap and there was a lot of me, like, being stubborn and, putting my own thing in because he wanted me to change the time limits a little bit and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but then it, just like he worked with those other people, he worked with me. Like he was like, okay, you don't want to do that, but you can do this. So let's do this. And he showed me like, if there's a new act that I haven't seen in the show before and, or, um, yeah, if, if there's a new act that I haven't seen in the show before and they haven't, they're not, they may not be comfortable with the format of the show. I'll put them, I'll protect them by putting them between two acts that are um, solid that I know um, they'll be able to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then um, usually I start off with uh, 
a powerful act that's a lot of times not no talking or something. It's a powerful circus act. And then I'll do something that's weird. And then that kind of sets up the context for the audience for the whole show. They understand that it can go really crazy and it can be amazing. And then, um, and then I'll usually put on a magician after that because a magician is like usually sharp and, and delivers but it's not like doesn't need to be as strong as the circus act and is like um and it's kind of like intellectual too mm -hmm. um it brings like a different flavor in. and then a stand-up comedian a lot of times that's like that's my basic start to the show because then a stand-up comedian stand-up comedian is set up well by a magician um because it isn't stand-up comedy but it also gets people's brains working and it lets them settle down a little bit and then they can get into a, a stand-up and um, enjoy it. So I'm like thinking about how to basically, usually like if an entertainer is good, then what's best for the entertainer is also best for the audience mm -hmm. and vice versa. So if like, if something's like really jarring to the audience, then they're not really going to understand how to, they're not going to appreciate the act unless the act is just jarring. That's the point. Um, so yeah, I do have to, it's a lot of it's a lot of thinking about. I kind of imagine my way through the show every time before, as I'm putting the lineup together. And then while the show's going on, a lot of times I'll be like, "Oh, I didn't know he was going to do that music act. We have a music act coming up after him. I'm going to move and I'll go around and I'll talk to the performers and I'll say, "Oh, I moved this person over there." So I'll be rearranging the lineup throughout the show. Um, I have like I built this app. I'm into web programming stuff so i built this like web app that is my own it it started out with like a google a google sheets spreadsheet mm -hmm. where i was keeping track of all the performers and then it was really annoying because i had to like look up the contact information of everybody and look at who's performed and when and what how, all this stuff so then I started building this app two years ago and here are all the performers for the week and um, on the mobile version it's a little harder to change the show order but I can just change the show order here mm -hmm. and I can um, and here are tags that so I know who what kind of acts are in the show I have too many stand-ups in the show um, and then and I can just send an email to all these people at once and I can keep track of um, when they performed last and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's like helping. It's, it helps me a lot because then I can work on the format of the show more. And, and I have a live lineup so people can see it on their phones. They can go to the website. The performers can go to the website and they can see who's in the lineup in what order. So during the show, it'll change, and they can see it change and um, be ready to go, um, which isn't totally ideal. Some people are kind of prissy and like they're like, I need to know that I'm going to have 15 minutes before my thing, and I do. They, not even for exercises or anything. They just want to know very predictably what's going on. So mm -hmm. yeah, you have to like deal with all these different people with their different operating manuals and try to get the best out of them by giving them what they 
what makes them feel safe and awesome. Um, so yeah, that's the show format thing. It's not easy. <laughs> but I'm glad it looks easy. It that's does it. look easy and it feels easy. Yeah. That's, that's important. It's got spritzatura. Spritzatura? Yeah. I don't know what that is. It is it's the... It's like when you spray a <laughs> Mexican treat. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> uh, it is when... it's Spritzatura is an Italian word that roughly means the art of uh, making something look really easy. Oh, okay. Or effortless. You guys, <laughs> what just happened was a water bottle on the floor. Yeah, good. Yeah, I want the thing that like I want the thing that sticks out from other shows to be like that it's better than other shows, not that it's it looks like I'm working <laughs> harder. <laughs> no, it does, yeah. I'm excited. Uh, so this this episode probably will come out the day after the Hollywood booby trap. But I can release it earlier if you want and we can like try and sure. see if people I think everybody knows about it. Pretty. You're doing pretty. You're on top of it on social media. You're really. <laughs> yeah. Really I'm a hustler. Um, yeah, I met. Sometimes I'll meet people and I'll be like, "Hey, I'm Scott Neri," and they'll be like, "From Scott Neri's booby trap." Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> no, it's from me. <laughs> uh, it's like it's funny because I was. Like pancake guy for so long. That's what people knew me as, uh-huh. and now I'm like booby trap guy, and and it's way better. And it's like also the difference between the cooking show. I, I had so many people trying to contribute to the cooking show, and I didn't let them. And with this, it's like so many people, and so much like so many people involved, and and I wanted I want people to feel ownership of it too. I want it to be like a beautiful thing that that like is great for. People. I want them to feel like it's their show to mm-hmm. go to and to, when they want to, like if they have a, like Brett just did a thing. He had this guy, this producer that wanted to see his act and he's like, could I come and perform and have this guy see my act? And I was like, yeah. And I, I love that. that It's like a place where, it's also hard to find a place where you could perform and and not be a nuisance to the producer because the show sucks. You like a lot of times you'll go and do a show and the people won't want to come and see you do it because they know they're going to be in for like a whole bunch of bad performers and you, mm-hmm. and they just don't want to like sit through it. Um, but yeah, it's like a lot of collaboration, a lot of working with other people. And I'm still, my name is still on it, so I still have like veto power, and that's good for me as a non collaborator <laughs> virgin. Uh, but uh, it's like, yeah, it's really cool to see how, how much people bring and like how, how much, how wrong I am. I, lo- I like being wrong. It's like, that's what drew me to magic when I was a little kid, too, because um, like the idea of like, a limited the idea of my limitations and like me being kind of like a victim to the world was that's what made me sad and that's what brought me down but like when when I saw magic tricks I was like whoa if I don't know how that works or I don't if things are being done that I didn't think were possible then 
what else is possible that I don't know about. And so I, I loved being wrong in magic and I, I loved sharing that with people that like telling them that wrong, <laughs> like, <laughs> like giving people an opportunity to be, to expand in that way. And this, and that's what working with other people is for me right now. It's totally, I, I think that certain things are important that aren't important. I think that only a certain amount of stuff can happen. And I think that, and I, I see the limits of what is important and what's, I don't know, what's like, what potential is. And like, just like, just like how my fiance tells me things that I didn't know mm-hmm. about myself. I didn't even think that there were qualities that I would look for in myself or whatever. Um, yeah, that stuff like that stuff keeps expanding for me and like keeps pre- proving me wrong, and it's pretty magical and uh, magical thinking. <laughs> TM. <laughs> I don't know that I could trademark it. I don't know. Hmm. Do you talk about what magical thinking is like in no. those terms? No. <laughs> well, here's a little insider knowledge on episode number. 20, 58 uh, 20, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like when somebody goes you'll never guess how much I spent for this dress and you go $20 and they're like no 30 <laughs> it's like the worst experience <laughs> um, the okay magical thinking oh yeah Magical thinking is when you, um, it's basically fantasy. It's, it's the idea of, um, it's a, it's a fantasy. Usually it's used in a negative way. You, where you think of like, I am, I am like, I'm a leader in the world and I'm a, and I'm a great person. And it's a thing that magi- a lot of magicians have. Yeah. Uh, thinking like, um, a lot of times it's being delusional. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Being delusional. Yeah. Yeah. And not illusional. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> look at you. TM. <laughs> illusional. Being illusional, not illusional. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, or thinking a lot of uh, people with OCD, that's kind of what. Uh, the thing is where they have to perform the ritual that is magical thinking. It's like, if I don't <clears throat> eat the corners of this sandwich first, my sister's going to die. Yeah. You know, that's, that would be considered magical thinking. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a dark name for a podcast that has nothing to do with that, but yeah. I like the tie in helps like with Google it. searches. Yeah. Do you ever have any OCD people on the show? Not yet. Yeah. Not like, pers- like, Whatever. Diagnosed. No, not yet. Not that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, so you guys out there, um, magical thinking, try not doing it. Just <laughs> listen to the podcast. And you'll be pretty well off. Let this be your magical thinking. What's up with the magicians? They're the worst. Come on. Oh, my God. I have a hard time going to the magic castle, man. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Um, Well, it used to be that I would perform at the Magic Castle sometimes, and then a lot of people knew who I was from that, and they would be familiar with me, Mm -hmm. and I 
wouldn't remember who they were and I felt horrible about that. I was I was really bad at remembering people for a long time. Like I never forgot a name but I had no idea who it applied to. Yeah. And um and then that first name and last name I wouldn't put them together, but I would know like I never forgot the word John. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, uh <laughs> so I'd be there like all these people would like be like Scott and I'd feel horrible that I didn't remember who they were and um so that was hard. And then I also like um there are like a few, like sometimes I'll see like really great act there, but um, most art to, or most like performances like ninety nine percent bad. So they have like a big, they have a lot of they have to book a lot of acts to fill up the castle, and um, it's just chances are that some of them aren't going to be very good, and that's like kind of that bums me out when I see it bad performers, especially with a willing audience. Yeah. And then, um, um, and then magicians, a lot of magicians, like I find that stand-up comedians want to be like the funniest person in the room a lot. And magicians want to be the smartest or the perceived smartest person in the room. So like, so with normal people, a lot of times magicians will like, try to create do something that other people can't figure out not all magicians but like a lot of the people that are drawn to magic um will do that and then when they're around other magicians then they're trying to like either fool the magician or say something just about geography that's way smarter (laughs) or whatever and i can't i'm i i'm more i feel more at home in a green room at a comedy club trying to be the funniest person Mm -hmm. um because I always am. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, so that that kind of relationship is um, having those kind of conversations is difficult for me. I I usually go there and I hang out with like one person and I just stay with that person and mm-hmm. then leave. So yeah, me the, too. The environment doesn't matter very much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what I mean what what do you recommend to magicians? I find that most magicians just aren't self-aware. It's like they think they know the method and that's enough and now they can go and perform and it's just not. Yeah. Um it doesn't matter like whatever it doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. Like I don't like juggling. I don't um I I I'm interested in magic, but I don't really like juggling in itself. I I performed juggling for a long time because that's what I felt was better for the audience mm-hmm. and and a little healthier for me. I wasn't sitting in front of a mirror all day. I was like outside juggling, so it was a little better. Um, but yeah, and um, Brett Laudermilk doesn't like sword swallowing. Like a lot of people, a lot of great entertainers don't like the thing that they're doing very much. It's not about the it's not about the magic. It's about um, just doing it a lot, and the thing that your your art school dream of whatever of creating this really cool thing. It's probably not what the audience wants. You need to get out and start doing it, and just give people what they want. That was like Frank Olivier's advice. That was he said, "Don't blame, never blame the audience." That that like formed all of my idea of what entertainment is. <clears throat> because I couldn't, I couldn't, it, all I had 
my job was to show up and entertain them no matter what, mm-hmm. no matter if the building was on fire or whatever, like, okay, so I have to figure out how to get these people out of the burning building and then, um, and then keep them, uh, keep them connected and interesting, interested, calm enough to walk out and help each other. And then, um, pumped that they got out of the building and give them a big celebration, whatever, like that's my job. Yeah. It's not my job to juggle well or whatever. Juggle good. Um, .com. <laughs> and that's what I was trying to get to the whole podcast. That's why I wouldn't stop talking. Thank you. Um, I don't have it. I, yeah, like I said, like advice for an entertainer doesn't really matter that much because I, the good ones just keep being good. You just do it. Yeah. Um, but. Um, well, then what makes uh, what makes a good magician? What are some of the good magic acts that you've seen? What do they have? I just saw this, the, this Japanese guy. I don't know what his name was, but he did like origami. Have you seen? He does origami on stage. He does like pulls a. I'm going to tell you like the worst explanation of what happens, but I'll just try to make it sound cohesive. Okay. So he pulls a white envelope out of his pocket, opens it up and there's a red card inside. Um, pulls out the red card. It folds itself into a origami crane. The envelope is then gone. Then he takes that red origami crane, pulls it apart into two cranes pulls it apart into four cranes. Then all those cranes turn into confetti and fall out of his hands. Then he goes back to his pocket. There's another envelope. He pulls it out. The envelope becomes a crane. Then the envelope turns into a card. And then that card splits into like a deck of cards and he's vanishing cards. Then the cards (laughs) turn into an envelope. (laughs) (laughs) And he opens it up. There's confetti inside. Then the envelope turns to confetti. <laughs> then pulls out an envelope. It, like he just keeps. It's just like it's like when I saw um, Jamie Swiss, Jamie and Swiss, the first time of like he had nothing and he just walked on stage and cards were coming out of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like that. That was like that was the kind of experience I had. But it was like re, a few weeks ago. Um, I forget the guy's name. Jim White. Do you know Jim White? I don't. He comes to Booby Trap a lot. He loves like. He loves magic and stuff, and he saw, I think he saw him, he saw this same act, like, um, 20 times or something like that in the week at the Magic Castle. Wow. Because it's just amazing. It was really good. Um, I think, yeah, a magician needs to understand what people see, but a magician needs to remember who, uh, what he saw when he fell in love with magic that's what i think a lot of people forget that they get they get into the thing they try to learn a thing they get excited about that what they saw at first and they kind of want to duplicate it and they get into the world and they have a community and they get distracted by trying to make friends and trying to be a cool person in that community or like trying or they geek out on like how a card slide works and they're like oh what are all the card slides and then what are all the things and then when they forget to, they forget what that thing was at the beginning, that, that thing that was powerful, powerful for them. Um, that's what a good 
magician does, I think. Um, a good magician will. Um, so, so then a lot of times a magician will, a good magician will perform slower than uh, a bad magician because they'll like wait and let um, the audience have cognition of what happened. Like mm. that's what David Blaine brought so well. It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't a magician's magician, but he was like, he was allowing people to experience it and like really um, appreciate it and understand it. And, and um, so I think that's why he was a great entertainer. I like David Copperfield is my favorite and he would, he would be a lot slower than a lot of modern magicians. Um, um, yeah. Understanding what people see and, and stuff like that. I think it's, I also think it's weird that I like doing pancake flipping because it was a thing that people could relate to people. A lot of people had tried to flip a pancake over before yeah. and a lot of people hadn't tried to juggle five balls. So, um, I, I like that. And, and that was a thing that I was kind of disillusioned with, with magic when I did that was that there was like a shiny box that mm -hmm. no, people had never seen before that had stencils painted on it. And then the, and then a thing would come out of it and go back in it and we, who cares? Um, people would be like, Oh, I don't know how that worked, but that isn't like, that doesn't change my life. And then like, I saw like Mayor Yedid doing like finger, the finger disappearing his finger and, um, things like that. That's what was like really cool to me. And I think it's funny that like people have like magicians use playing cards so much, but playing cards aren't a common people don't play cards. Mm -hmm. If somebody, if you see a picture of somebody with a fan of cards, you're like, oh, a magician. Yeah. Because that's a magician product. That's not a thing that people have. Mm -hmm. And pe magicians had playing cards. They had handkerchiefs because people had handkerchiefs. They had coins because people had coins. Now people don't have coins. People don't have handkerchiefs. People don't have cards. And I think it's weird that magicians are pursuing these like. The idea is your the idea of being a magician to me is proving. A supernatural thing that's like the, the theatrical side of it the story of it mm -hmm. is that you're proving a, a supernatural thing so the only way to prove a supernatural thing is with natural objects or things that people are always using so like when people and there are like a million tricks now everybody's invented a million tricks so like i love i don't need a magician to create something new for me but like doing something with stuff that i've uh, something that makes sense like also there's the opposite where a magician comes on stage with a tuxedo pulls out a paper bag and a ketchup bottle and i'm like why are you a waiter yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly if so then why the bag lunch yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's it's a weird so that's a weird thing it doesn't really screw up audiences that much to have that stuff but like but still, why not? Why not like do stuff with real things? Um, and I think that's that's part of not. And then the magician, like then when I see it, like I and I had an argument with John Armstrong on Facebook like four years ago about this. He was like he was making fun of some deck of cards because it looked like magic, a magic trick. And I was like, yeah, but cards look like magic tricks. That's what people yeah. assume that it's a trick deck most of the time, I think. And, and 
and since then I've seen John Armstrong perform and what he does is he a lot of time uh, most of his tricks aren't about how a pack of cards works or about like a knowledge of cards it's like these are some things and I'm going to move these things around in a way that you won't that mm -hmm. you haven't seen before yeah you know what I mean yeah um, the cards are used as objects and not as identities. Right. Yeah. Right. And not 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 like he's not depending on the symbolism of them or the whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so I, I really like John Armstrong and, and I just saw his friend show and it has like one kind of card trick in it. But he's like he's doing all kinds of stuff. Um Yeah, I think that's like I think that's a matter of People, magicians paying attention to what what's actually going on with an audience and what they care about and um, trying to do the thing that's most powerful. I love it when a magician just tries to do the most powerful trick for an audience. Like that's what I want in Booby Trap every time. Mm -hmm. I just want somebody to like come and kill and like why not? Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I have a, a few questions to end. Okay, good. Uh, so, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? Um, it's been a while since I've answered this question. I think I like um, this book called Propaganda. It's written by Edward R. Bernays, and it's, uh, it's like half an inch thick. It's very small, but every single word, every single like sentence is super dense and crazy. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he's called the godfather of modern proper, uh, modern PR. So he like um, one thing he did was he established bacon and eggs as the American breakfast. By he worked for this meat packing company in the Boston Meat Packing Company or something, and he um, they wanted to sell more bacon, so he was like. Okay, and he went out and talked to a bunch of doctors and said, "Hey, do you think it's a healthy breakfast to have bacon, bacon for breakfast, or like meat for breakfast?" And they were like, "Yeah, I think it's good to have that." So he just started promoting all, to all these people that bacon was like, bacon and eggs were the thing. So now it's on every like diner menu, bacon and eggs as a combination. Mm -hmm. he, he combined those two things to sell bacon. He. Um, he worked with architectural magazines in order to promote music rooms and houses because he was trying to sell pianos and nobody wanted to buy a piano because they they didn't have space for it in their house. So instead of like just pushing pianos on people, he went through architects, architectural magazine to get architects to say, this is a trend in houses. And then people had a music room in their house and they were like, I got to fill it up with something. I guess I'll buy a piano from whatever piano company. We created demand. Yeah, like, yeah, and nobody was doing it. People were just going like, hey, our detergent cleans clothes. <laughs> and, and he was like, um, our detergent is in every single home because we tricked everybody to buy it. <laughs> like, like, yeah, he, he started the, like, there's like a Dove, or not Dove, uh, Ivory Soap has this, soap carving competition every year with in schools and schools get funded it's funding from ivory soap so his idea was to have 
all these kids have to buy soap at their school for this competition. And then, so their mothers go to the store, buy ivory, and then they're used to, then they feel more comfortable with buying ivory soap mm-hmm. for, because of this kind like he's doing all the stuff that people are doing now. And, um, yeah, that's like, that's really cool. And total, it totally messes your mind how much, cause people are like, Oh yeah, I got it pretty much figured out about how the government's trying to trick us. And like, it's, yeah, it's pretty clear, but it's like, the re- you know, like the reason the magician doesn't repeat his trick is because if somebody knows what the outcome is, then they can figure out they s- they can watch it again and try to figure out how to get to that outcome. Mm-hmm. They can watch which hand the thing is in and stuff like that. And but we don't know the outcome. We don't know the outcome that the government has for us. We don't know. We don't know why an architectural magazine is publishing that music rooms are a thing. So that's like that's really cool to me that. That that's what really fascinated me about marketing and propaganda and stuff was that like people don't we don't know why people are doing this stuff and we're never going to figure it out and it and a lot of times he would target like college professors and doctors because these people aren't less gullible mm-hmm. they're they're more because we think that the smarter we get the less gullible we get yeah. or whatever and yeah. So that's like, that's just all fascinating to me. It makes me feel like a lot more, I don't know. It makes me feel like free and kind of like, fuck it all. Let's have fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. That sounds really cool. It was called propaganda. Yeah. Okay. Cause he was like, he loved the word propaganda, mm-hmm. but it was getting a bad name because of world war one or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he was like, I want to, I think that propaganda is not only it's not only a beautiful thing that but it also helps us to build a power a good society because we're walking around with a million with a million influences and we can't really track down how life works um, we don't know if unless you're a soap expert you don't know which is the best soap to buy so wouldn't so we need people that are smarter to figure these things out for us and then put them together so that a normal person can make the right choices. So that's what his defense of it was like, we need to have, we need to have these government officials that are deciding the three candidates for us to vote on because a normal person can't make these decisions, isn't capable of making these decisions, which is kind of like a crazy, that's kind of like a Hitler kind of thing idea. Yeah. But, um, but it also it's also like fascinating and cool. and reasonable. Yeah, in a, in a way, yeah, yeah. It's definitely good to have experts leading things, but not necessarily controlling people's minds. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite performer that you've seen? My favorite entertainer in of all the world time. of all time, alive or dead. No, I'm not sure if he's alive or dead. Scott Neary. <laughs> you were gonna yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> What can I do? I'm really good. I've seen a lot of me. Yeah. I'm pretty. I have a lot of gas. I'm pretty consistent. That's um, true. I like um, Michael Rayner. Um, I would love. I would love it if Michael Rayner and Ron Lynch could be in Booby Trap every single week. Um, I. I don't. 
Reggie Watts is like really amazing to me. He's not like, I wouldn't just watch videos of him all day or anything, yeah. but I love watching what he does to an audience. I, I watch audiences when I watch shows. So I, I love what he does. Um, Lindsay Benner is awesome. You asked for She's one. She's amazing, yeah. yeah. But, um, and Brett Laddermilk is great. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I know there's no way to say one, which is why I said pick one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it's not me, it's Michael Rayner. This is the second lull. We're doing a lull right now. I'm going to really try to be in this lull. I'm not going to bring emotion to it. Because I would unlull it. Mm -hmm. Where's your favorite place to perform? Booby trap! Booby trap, <laughs> it is. It is. It's my dream, man. It's like, it's so crazy. And I've... Um, I've been, tr I tried for a year pretty much to think of like, how do I make this into a profitable thing or mm -hmm. over a year? How do I make this into a profitable thing? How do I turn it into like five shows a week or 10 shows a week or whatever? And just like make money with it and have that be my career because it's so awesome to me. But what it is right now is like, it's great. And people are offering uh, people keep talking to me about making it a TV show and stuff like that. And I think that would be great if it's just documenting what it is. Yeah. But um, if somebody wants to change what it is and make it like fancier or whatever, then I just, it's, then it would just be taking away my dream. Like it's really, it's really so awesome to me. Yeah. So um, that's my favorite place to perform right now. Um, the street was really great to me. Um, but I got threatened, my life got threatened a lot by crackheads and stuff. And I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. Yeah. New Orleans sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I got threatened in New York and in uh, Venice beach and San Francisco. Did you ever get into any dangerous situations where you were harmed? Um, Not on purpose. Not really. No. That's good. Yeah. I, I have a certain way of being aggressive yet not confrontational. So, um, it's hard. People weren't able to really fight me because I wasn't there to fight them. I was mm -hmm. just like very firmly present yeah. a lot of times, but, um, I'd get threatened and I'd get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, gang members in one place that was like, they were like, they followed me around after when I went back and after one show where I kind of made fun of, I made fun of this one guy and then the gang, gang members would follow me around each time I came back to the place. So I just stopped going there. and, um, break dancers threatened to kill me because I like, I was there first. And then I wouldn't let, they were like, it's showtime. And I was like, no, I go, I go first. I've been waiting for the spot. And then they were like, no, we're doing it. And they played their music really loud. And they, and I was arguing with them and I was drawing a crowd. And so we both drew a crowd together in Washington Square Park. And then 
and it was a big crowd and they were like they were like people were confused and kind of excited about what was happening and then I was like do you guys um, do you guys want to see pancake flipping or just some more like kids break dancing and people were like pancake <laughs> and they're like four guys and they were like and they're like, no, we're gonna do it. And they just, and then I, eventually I, got, I couldn't shout over the music anymore. And I just kind of like let them do their thing, but I just stood there in the middle of it. And then they did their finale and they collect money before their finale. Huh. And they collected like $6 from this huge crowd. And they were like super pissed. And um, then um, I did, I did my show after that and I did okay, but it was like pretty dispersed audience at that point. And then um, they were like threatening to kill me and stuff. And, and it's like, things are always fringe legal in street performing. So I couldn't really tell the cops because then they would be like, nobody should be street performing. Yeah. Let's kick everybody out. And that was my source of income. So it was like, it was a tricky thing. It was like living like a criminal where you can't turn to the cops. So that's my story about whatever you asked me about. <laughs> okay, well, we end with the final question, which is, um, when was the hardest time you ever fooled by a magic trick? Or the best the best magic trick you ever saw that totally blew your mind, but it was really good for you. Mm. That's a, I like that question. Because when I have magicians on, and I say, "What was the hardest, like the best moment, moment of astonishment?" Like, yeah. it felt like your world had been flipped inside out. Yeah. How about for you? For me? Yeah. Uh, have you answered the question on the podcast? I have. Okay, never mind. <laughs> How about second most fooled? Second most fooled um, <clears throat> was. Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know that I have a second most fool, but a memory that keeps coming back to me when I talk when I talk with people about sort of them getting into magic that I only sometimes remember was a guy on a cruise ship doing uh, the great rubber band escape when you link two bands together yeah. and you do this and he just did it right in front of my face and it totally blew my mind. It was amazing and I was in like middle school. You are such an idiot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that trick. Yeah, I was like freaked out by that trick when I was like becoming popular. Did Copperfield do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw it just before he did it or something. I like a IBM meeting with like old smelly guys in a McDonald's ba- uh, basement. Um <laughs> I'm going to say that like unnamed Japanese guy. Yeah. Uh, it's like, because, because I've consulted with a lot of magicians. I've consulted like fig- helping them figure out the timing for the tricks and like figure out a better working for their tricks and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And I've jammed with magicians on coming up with new ideas and I've invented magic tricks and I've been around a lot and I don't know, like usually it's either I know how the trick works or I don't really care. Yeah. And this guy, like I cared and I didn't know. And yeah, so it was like, things were like melting into other, like it was super insane, super crazy. And yeah, so I was, that was the guy. What's his name? (laughs) I'll never forget. What's his name? (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Yeah.
What do you do? You, do you need to plug anything? Follow um, Booby Trap on Instagram and sure. <laughs> Come to pay money. <laughs> Follow me. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna start a podcast soon. I, I've recorded a few episodes, and it's called Awkward Stages, and it's about like masters of live entertainment. Um, so Stephen Banks, who's Billy the Mime, and he's also uh, he was also the head writer on SpongeBob SquarePants, and Justin Wilman and um, Eric Schwartz Smoothie. I've interviewed these three people, and I'm gonna be interviewing more people and then starting to release them. And um, I don't know when that'll be out, but um, yeah, I'll be working on that. I'm doing, I also have a thing called Stage Geek. It's stage-geek.com, I think. And <clears throat> you can go there and sign up for the email list. And sometimes I send out little emails with my theories about live entertainment and how to make it better. And I have a few different blog posts about it, about how to, um, what makes great live entertainment better. And um, yeah. So, those are some things. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about either of those things. Yeah, and be my friend and uh, come to the shows and tell me what to do better. I'll do it. Great. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This is great. Thank you, dude. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.